Well, good morning, Rocky Peak. Great to see you. My name is Michael, and I, too, am one of the pastors here. And so, again, if you're here for the very first time, whether you're here in a worship center over in a Ridge venue, want to welcome you. Uh, we're going to go into our time of teaching. Uh, yeah, the, Johnny's mentioned, but I'm really excited about these Israel trips. They've been an um, amazing part of our church, uh, just kind of the teaching ministry, growth ministry. I call it Adventure Israel. We do a lot of hiking and caves and just a lot of fun stuff. But um, anyways, next year we're actually doing two trips back to back. So I'm going to go over there and lead a trip and then just stay there and another trip is coming in. So uh, our waiting list had grown so large like we were never going to catch up. So uh, you've got some great opportunities, two choices, and hope that some of you will be able to go with us uh, in the spring. But uh, anyway, we're going to go into our time of teaching right now. And inside your program is a green and white message note sheet we use every week. But if you're brand new, you may not know that. So I encourage you to take that out. And if you're ready to go, I'm ready to jump in. You guys ready to go? Okay, let's pray. God, we're just excited to be here and to be pursuing you as a church. We're hungry for you, hungry what you're going to do in our lives. And we're just thankful for what you've been teaching us this uh, last week about the, the new covenant that we enter into with you uh, through Jesus and, and all the gifts that come with that. And today as we continue to explore that, we pray that you teach, lead, guide, heal, do all the things that only you could do as we gather around your word. And we pray this in Jesus' name. And everyone said, Amen. Amen. Well, our story starts today in the desert, and he's been out there for the last uh, almost a month and a half. And uh, it's been an amazing, life changing experience. But uh, the time has come for him to go home. And he has mixed emotions because, on the one hand, it's like um, he's never sure it's going to be this good again. Um, but on the other hand, he misses his family, he misses his friends, and he needs to get back to his, his job. And uh, so he packs up on this particular morning, and um, he starts heading back the long journey home. And uh, on the way, he has a lot of time to reflect on what's happened the last month and a half and the way his life has changed. And he wonders what it'll be like, and uh, going back in the same old position, but just with this new life-changing perspective, what will it be like? Uh, how will people respond? But the one thing he didn't anticipate is that when he got back, that not only was he aware of all the changes on the inside that it happened, what blew him away was how everyone else seemed to be aware. In fact, some of the observations they were making about him and how he changed seemed outlandish. They seemed larger than life. They seemed exaggerated. And at first he thought they were just making something out of nothing. But the more he talked, the more he became convinced they were right. So this was a challenge he never anticipated because he thought he'd just come back and, yeah, changes happen on the inside, but, but he'd be able to slip back in his role and figure it out. But that was not the case. Now the question is, how do you change? How do you lead when you've not only changed so much, but people have seen you change so much? Well, today we are continuing our series. This is week seven. And we've been in, it's called Metamorphosis Face-to-Face. -face. And for those of you who are brand new, this is a series that is based on a letter that was written by one of the key leaders of the early movement of Jesus. We call him Paul, the Apostle Paul. He's writing to a group of Jesus followers that he actually led to Jesus about five or six years before in a major metropolitan city in the Roman Empire. It's uh, what today would be called Southern Greece. The name of the, the city is Corinth. And so the name of the letter is 2 Corinthians. And uh, one of the key words uh, that he uses in this letter is, a, is uh, the Greek word uh, metamorpho. And we've talked about this, this, this word, we'll talk more about it today. 
But this is, of course, where we get in English our word metamorphosis from, which describes a slow but radical, maybe even profound change. And uh, this is the word that he uses, and he says that when a man or woman comes into relationship with Jesus, that they, they automatically begin to enter into a life-changing process of transformation, supernatural. And we're going to be looking at that more today as he, we, we come to this passage in chapter 3, which is kind of the key passage where he throws out this metaphor. But uh, before we jump in, we're going to need a little bit of background. Like the last couple of weeks, there's a lot of things Paul's assuming that we know from the Old Testament. We're going to need to go back and make sure we're up to speed. So there in your note sheet, you have a section that's called Metamorphosis, the Backstory. All right, so if you have your Bibles, you have your apps, let's go ahead and open up, turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 3, so we'll be ready to go. But before we jump in, I want to give you a little backstory to this passage. And so if you were here last week, Paul began to talk to us about the two covenants, the old covenant and the new covenant. So if you were here, you, you remember that when the nation of Israel came out of slavery in Egypt, God rescued them that he led them to Mount Sinai. It was a three-month journey. And once they got there, uh, God came to the people and revealed himself in an amazing show of glory and power. Uh, we're told in Exodus 19 and 20 that the, when God came, it's like the mountain shook. There was a huge earthquake. There was smoke. There was fire. There was like, looked like a chimney. There was uh, uh, trumpets and lightning. It was just really impressive scene. And then out of the darkness, God speaks, and he speaks what we call in Hebrew the Ten Words, or, or we call them the Ten Commandments. And basically, God is coming to offer uh, to enter into covenant with Israel. And so we don't use the word covenant a lot today, but a covenant in the ancient world was just a formalized agreement of relationship. Like today, uh, marriage would be a covenant today. And just like in marriage where there's certain terms of the covenant, you know, for better or worse, richer or poorer, uh, for, till, till death do we part, there were terms of their relationship. So God's offering to enter into relationship. I will be your God, you will be my people. Here are the terms, the 10 words. And so the people have the option of saying yes or no. They say yes, they enter into covenant, but they are absolutely terrified at this show of power. And so they send Moses up to go into the smoke, into the fire. Why don't you go up and get the rest of the details? And so Moses does, he disappears for 40 days. And you may remember that after 40 days, they're like, what happened to him? He disappeared, he doesn't come back, he's probably dead. And so they break the covenant right away by uh, worshiping the golden calf. And so he's forced to come down and deal with that crisis. Then he goes back up for 40 more days. Uh, and so it's about a month and a half, and now it's time for him to come down. And this leads us to uh, our story we started the day with. We talked about this guy who's been away in the desert for about a month and a half, 40 days. He's been there. Um, his, it's been a life-changing experience for him. Has mixed uh, emotions about whether well, he stays or goes back, but it's time to go back to his family and friends, to his leadership position. And so as Moses is coming down the mountain, he knows this has been a life-transforming experience for him. He's been in the presence of God. What he doesn't know is that his face has actually absorbed the divine glory. Uh, so I'm sure he has no mirrors. You know, there's no like rest stops on the way down. So he doesn't know that his face is glowing. And, uh, but when he shows up down below, everyone is terrified. Uh, we're told that it was so brilliant. If you want to read them for yourself, Exodus 34, his face was so bright, they couldn't look at his face. So he goes ahead and he tells them what the Lord said 
Um, but then he decides just to protect them to put a veil over his face so they wouldn't freak out. But as it turns out, it turns out this was a short-term glory. It was a fading glory. It was like a Tesla. It needed to be recharged. And so what would happen is when he would go in to meet with the Lord in the, what was called the tent of meeting, that he would take the veil off. He'd be in the presence of the Lord, and his face would get recharged. Uh, he'd come out, and people, he's brilliant, and he'd talk to the people, then he'd put the veil back on. Now, this is the backstory from Exodus 34 that, mo- that Paul assumes we know like the back of our hand and without which today makes no sense, 2 Corinthians 3. So if you have your Bibles, you've already opened up, hopefully, to 2 Corinthians 3. Let's go ahead and jump in now, and uh, we'll start looking at the passage. So there in your note sheet, you have a section that's called Metamorphosis, the New Covenant. So we're going to pick it up where we left off last week at chapter 3 and verse 6, just to set the stage. So he says, uh, he, God, God, God has made us, us, remember Paul uses it a lot in 2 Corinthians, he talks first person plural like us, we, but he's really talking about himself as the apostle of Jesus. He said he's made us as competent as ministers or servants of the new covenant. So you remember, you know, God entered into, we saw this last week, God enters into covenant with Israel at Mount Sinai. They say, I do. But right away, they break the covenant. And you remember, there were not only rules of relationship, the Ten Commandments, but there were promises of blessings and curses. And if you kept the covenant, you'd live under the blessing, but if you rebelled, you'd be under the curse, under the judgment, you'd lead to death. And you remember that over the next uh, six, seven, eight hundred years, they rebelled against God, for the most part, as a nation, and it finally led to the ultimate judgment of exile being sent off to Assyria and Babylon. But you may remember that before that happened, God in his mercy comes to the nation and he says, yes, you're going to go into exile, but in Jeremiah 31, he said, but one day I'm going to bring you back to this land and I'm going to enter into a new covenant. You remember that? Jeremiah 30, we looked at it last week where God said, and when I bring you back, I'm not only going to forgive you for your rebellion, but this time I'm going to write my law not on tablets of stone, but on your heart. I'm gonna change you from the inside out, supernaturally change you so that you really can love God and love people, right? That, remember what Jesus said, all the 10 commandments just, they really can be summarized, so I love God, love people. And so I'm gonna change you from the inside, I'm gonna pour my spirit out on you. And so uh, last week Paul started talking about the, the old covenant and the new when Jesus came and initiated the new. And so he says here in 3.6 that he has made us, Paul, and his team as, uh, we made as competent as ministers of a new covenant, not of the letter, the old Ten Commandments on, on letters of stone, on the tablets of stone, but of the spirit, the new covenant. For the letter kills, it leads to judgment, not because there's something wrong with the covenant, but because there was something wrong with us as a race. That, that if you say, here's what you need to do, love God and love people, we can't do that. We're a broken race, we've rebelled. We're drawn to the dark side. So we rebel and it ends in judgment. So the old covenant, he said, the letter kills, but the new covenant, the spirit gives life. So now we're ready for this new passage today. So he's gonna continue on today to compare the old covenant and the new, and in particular, talk about how much better or much more glory is the new than the old. And so he says, so if the ministry that brought death, so that's the first covenant, uh, which was engraved in letters of stone, it came with glory. Think Mount Sinai. Um, so the Israelites could not look steadily on the face of Moses because of its glory. See Exodus 34. 
uh, transitory though it was, even though that glory was fading, both the, the covenant and in the face of Moses, will not the ministry of the Spirit, this new covenant, be more glorious? And if the ministry that brought condemnation was glorious, how much more glorious is the ministry that brings righteousness? Not only forgiveness, but changing us from the inside out so we truly be the people we are created to be. For what was glorious, the old covenant, uh, has, now, has no glory now in comparison with their surpassing glory. Uh, so in other words, um, I don't know if you've ever been out at night, uh, maybe in the desert at night or uh, in the Sierras at night, somewhere you know, beautiful at night, it's like an un- undeveloped area, and the night sky is so bright, and if you've ever been out when there's a full moon, it is amazing. Uh, it is so bright. There's been times you just like look around for like, where are the light? You know, it's like there's gotta be like, this can't be natural. It is so bright, but I don't care how bright the moon gets, how glorious it is, that when the sun rises, the sun is so much brighter, that glory passes away. And so what Paul is saying is that, yeah, the first covenant was amazing. It was, it was God coming and choosing Israel to be his people and reveal, it, was, it came with glory, but the, the covenant that now, the new covenant, Jeremiah prophesied come with Jesus, it's so much better that it's like it, it robs the old, it's like it's just, surpasses the old, eclipses the old. And then he says, and verse 11, and if what was transitory came with glory, in other words, the old covenant was never designed to last forever. It had an expiration date stamped on the stones from the beginning. It says, how much greater is the glory which lasts? This new covenant we've entered into with God through Christ, it will go on forever and uh, it will lead to greater glory when Jesus comes back and we're made like him and so on. And so um, he says, therefore, verse 12, since we have such a hope, we're so clear on this future that's coming, we are very bold. Now remember what we've learned. In 2 Corinthians, it doesn't matter what chapter you're reading, there's always a back, the backdrop of criticism of Paul, questioning his leadership, are you a real apostle? And here we see it again. Um, there apparently was criticism going on of Paul that he was just too bold a teacher. He was too confident a teacher. He's too, he's too passionate about this new covenant. And uh, hey, you need to be more sophisticated, not so worked up. And he's like, listen, this is why we're so bold because we're so clear on what Jesus, who Jesus is and this new covenant and the reality. So, man, it's, it's hard. And when he gets to chapter five, he says, if we're out of our mind, it's for God. If we're in our right mind, it's for you. It's like, he's passionate about this, right? And he says, we're, and then he says something really interesting. He says, in fact, we're not like Moses. So Paul's the conduit of the new covenant, Moses of the old. He said, we're not really like Moses who would put a veil over his face to prevent the Israelites from seeing the end of what was passing away. Now this is really interesting because if you go back to Exodus 34 and you read the account of the veil, there's nothing said in there about putting a veil on to prevent them from seeing that the, that the uh, power was going away. Uh, if you were to go back there and read it, all it says is that he put the veil on because they were terrified. He scared them to death. And Paul is introducing something new here. He says there's actually something else going on. And he doesn't say a lot about this. So I don't want to make more of it than it is. He doesn't go into it. But it seems like what he's saying is that Moses put a veil on, not just to protect them, but to maybe, so they wouldn't know that the glory was fading away. 
And you say, well, let's just go with that theory. Let's say that it is weak. Why would he do that? Well, I want you to imagine. I come out this morning, and my face is like brilliant, right? <laughs> I come out, and you're like, oh, it's crazy. Get my sunglasses, put it on. I can't even look at him. And then Dre comes out and says, hey, I just feel like I need to explain what's going on here. That, you know, Michael's been fasting for the last three weeks, and he's just been with Jesus in his face. It's just crazy. He's just coming out here. <laughs> and so, uh, if you don't mind, we're just going to have sunglasses required at all future services because, you know. So, let's say that's the case. Now, let's say that I go to start teaching, and I say, hey, I just want to share with you what Jesus shared with me for our church this week. Do you think you might be paying a little closer attention than you are right now? Yeah, it's like you're obviously been with the Lord, right? You're speaking for him. And it may be that Moses is like, hey, this is not all bad. And so he goes in, gets recharged with the Lord. He takes the veil off, goes in, gets recharged. And when he comes out, he's just got full charged. You know, I can go 250 miles. And... Uh, but Paul's going to use this incident with Moses and the veil as like a spiritual analogy, a parable, a metaphor. And it's really incredible. So his first application in the medical is, hey, Moses, when he was with the glory in the first covenant, he put a veil on. People couldn't see it. He said, we are ministers of the new covenant. Veil's off. We're full on. We're bold. But second analogy is really interesting. He says, you know what? That the, the reality is, because Moses put the veil on, he got to see the glory. He'd take it off. He said, and he was transformed. But the people didn't get to see the glory. They just see it short term when he talked, but then they wouldn't get to see it. And so they weren't really transformed. And so he says, you know what? He says, and even to this day, is I go around the Roman Empire. And remember when Paul would teach, he'd always go to synagogue first and share Jesus with Jewish people and then when rejected, he'd go out and share with Gentiles. He said, you know what? What I find today is that when I'm out teaching and like in the synagogue and I'm opening up the Old Covenant, remember the Old Covenant, the Old Testament? I'm opening up the Old Covenant and I'm teaching about the prophecies about Jesus and the New Covenant, how it's been fulfilled. He said, it's like that same veil is still there. And like they can't see the glory of God in the face of Jesus that's being revealed through this Old Covenant. Um, and so he says in verse uh, 12, since we have such a hope, we're very bold. We're not like Moses who put a veil over his face to prevent the Israelites from seeing the end of what was passing away, but their minds were made dull. And in the Greek, what it literally says, and I wish they translated it this way, it literally says that their minds were hardened. And that's Old Testament language. When God speaks and you reject his teaching, our hearts become hard. And we lose the capacity to hear his voice. We lose the capacity to respond to his teaching. And so he says that, um, he says, their minds were made dull or hardened, for to this very day, the same veil remains when the old covenant is read. It's not been removed because only in Christ, remember Christ means Messiah, only in Messiah is it taken away. He said, even to this day, when Moses is read, a veil covers their hearts. But when anyone turns to the Lord, like when Moses would return to the tent, okay, 
And he takes, whenever, whenever it turns to the Lord, they turn to Christ. He says, when that happens, he says, the veil is taken away. And he says, now, the Lord of Exodus 34, remember Moses will be with the Lord. The Lord is the spirit of the new covenant. Same word. And where the spirit of the Lord is, there is what? Freedom. There's freedom. There's uh, the veils taken away. Uh, we're no longer hindered. And we all, as Christ followers, who with unveiled faces, we contemplate the Lord's glory, like Moses going in and seeing the glory of the Lord. Like we, as followers of Jesus, we contemplate the Lord's glory. We are being what? We're being transformed into his image. Like Moses came out looking like the glory. So we're transformed into his image with ever-increasing glory. Like the longer we walk with Jesus, the more glory, the more wattage. How many watts are in your walk? <laughs> you know, any dim bulbs? No, just kidding. Um, which come from the Lord, who is the Spirit. So a beautiful passage, a tough passage, requires a lot of kind of familiarity with this Old Testament covenant. Uh, and even then, it's challenging. One of the most challenging but powerful passage where Paul talks about God's vision for our life, his vision of transformation, um, and how that transformation works. And so what I want to do today is a couple things. Uh, first of all, I want to talk about uh, two big picture principles about God's vision for our lives, what it means to be a follower of Jesus, this vision of metamorphosis. Secondly, I want to come back and get as practical as possible and say, for you, for me, how do we grow, how do we experience this process of transformation in our lives? What does it take? Bottom line, put the cookies on the bottom shelf. So there in your note sheet, we have a section that's called metamorphosis, the path to transformation, two big picture principles. Let's start. The first one is the most obvious, but I think in, in a way the most important is that God's vision is transformation. Uh, then there's when a man or a woman comes to Jesus, he has a vision for our life, and that vision is much more of what we have traditionally thought of as salvation. Uh, let me ask you a question. If someone were to ask you, what does it mean to be a Christian, what would you say? And my hunch is, is that for many of us, we would say something like this. Well, to be a Christian is to believe in Jesus and that Jesus died for our sins so we can go to heaven when we die or in the next life. Something like that. Now, what I want you to catch is that is not so much wrong as incomplete. Right? It's only part of the story. What we're learning last week and this week is that when a man or woman comes to Jesus, we are entering into covenant with God. You remember that from last week? We enter into a covenant with God through Jesus. Remember, Jesus said the Last Supper, it's my bread, the body's my bread. This is the blood of the new covenant. That Jesus was issuing, uh, starting the new covenant. So when a man or woman comes to Jesus, we enter into covenant relationship with God. And what we saw last week is that covenant, there are four gifts of the covenant. You remember that? That the first gift is forgiveness. And catch this, without forgiveness, there can be no other gifts. Because you and I are part of a rebel race. We're born uh, enemies of God, the scripture says. We can't enter into relationship with God. We can't fellowship with God. We have to be forgiven. There has to be atonement made. Without that, we can't enter the presence of God. Nothing else can happen without forgiveness. 
But forgiveness is not the end of the story. It's not the final goal of this tale. Forgiveness is the start of the story. The reason that we're forgiven is so that God can come and live with us. We can be the temple of the living God, as we read last week. And that then the Holy Spirit can transform us from the inside out. Remember, write his law on our hearts. Give us the power to be the people we were created to be. People who can love God and love people by the power of his spirit. So God's vision is much bigger than forgiveness. His vision is transformation. Now, this is one of the best passages in the New Testament that highlights how important this is. There in your note sheet, second, oh, not in your note sheet, but in, in your Bible, second, uh, second Corinthians 3.18. We're going to spend a lot of time in second Corinthians 3.18, so don't lose it, all right? So, we all, as Christ followers, with unveiled faces, we contemplate the Lord's glory that we are being what? Transformed. So there's the word. So circle that, underline what? We're being transformed. Now notice, in the Greek, this is that word that we base the whole series on, metamorpho, right? This is that word that we, in, in English, we, we use, uh, it becomes metamorphosis. We use it to describe this slow, gradual, but profound or radical change that we go through uh, it's like what the, the process that say like a caterpillar goes through to become a butterfly or a tadpole, a frog. And so what Paul is saying is that when you become a follower of Jesus, you are naturally enrolled, you become uh, part of an ongoing transformation process. But notice what the goal of this, like the goal of a, a metamorphosis of a tadpole is to become what? A frog, Yeah. Right? The, the goal of a caterpillar is to become a butterfly, right? And that's the point. The point of the question is, okay, we're being transformed, but what is the goal? Transformed into what? And if you look what Paul says in 3.18, he said we are being transformed into his what? Image. That is a reference to Genesis 1. Where as a race, we were created in the image of God. We were created to be like God. This is what we lost or was marred or defaced when we rebelled against God as a race. We were created to love God and love people. When we rebelled against them, we were plunged into spiritual darkness and we became self-absorbed and we have this natural magnetic pull to the dark side. And so we're no longer like God naturally in our core character. We are not like him. And the reason Jesus came is to restore our race to be the people we are created to be. Now, this men and women, is a powerful paradigm. And for many of us, we need to exchange our old paradigm of what salvation means for a new paradigm. It's not that we don't need forgiveness. Without forgiveness, without the death of Jesus, none of this is possible. But we need to say, why did Jesus die? Not just so we could be forgiven, but so we could be renewed and transformed to be like our creator again. And once you see this, it changes your whole approach to what it means to be a follower of Jesus. If you have the wrong target, you'll hit it every time. <laughs> like we need to put the right target on the wall. 
And the target is we're transformed to be like our creator again. Now, once you put on this transformation glasses, then you begin to see it throughout the Bible. So, for example, there in your note sheet, I put just a couple of verses from the New Testament. Uh, there's many more, but I just used a couple because these um, actually use the same language of image. But like Colossians 3.9, Paul says, do not lie to each other since you've taken off your old self, your old identity, with its practices, and you put on a new self, which is what? Being renewed, underline that, ongoing process, we'll talk about that later. It's being renewed, it's being renewed in what? In knowledge, right? So remember when I said when we rebelled against God as a race, we are plunged into darkness, If we're going to be transformed, the light has to get turned on. We'll talk more about that later. But notice the goal, which is being renewed in knowledge in the what? In the image of the creator. This is the goal. Paul says, hey, stop lying because you've come to Jesus. You put off your old self. You're putting on your new. And that new self is being renewed, ongoing process. So you become like your creator again. Look at the next verse. From Romans 8. Of course, Romans 8 comes at the end of, you know, eight chapters of Romans where Paul is giving the big picture story of creation, rebellion, redemption, new creation. And as he comes to the end of that passage, he says, for those God foreknew, he's talking about us as believers, he knew us before time, he also predestined or planned out to be conformed to the what? that image of his son, catch us, so that he might be the firstborn, like the first, first kid, among many brothers and sisters. I'm going to say God's vision is to create a new humanity, a new race, a race of people that are like our big brother Jesus. This is why he's come, to restore all of creation and us as the leaders of it that we might be the people we're created to be. So God's vision is transformation. Number two, the second principle is that transformation is a supernatural process. And every word in this is important. Transformation is our key word, but it's a supernatural process. I wanna focus on those two words, supernatural and process. Let's take them in reverse order. Let's start with process. The first thing I want you to catch is that when you came to Jesus, or when you come to Jesus, the moment you come to Jesus, you enter into a supernatural process of transformation. But it is a process. In other words, a caterpillar doesn't become a butterfly overnight. A tadpole doesn't turn into a frog overnight. There's a process. And in our lives, as we listen and follow the leading of the Holy Spirit, one day at a time, one step at a time, we are going through an ongoing process. And I want to point this out. If you look at 3.18 again, 2 Corinthians 3.18, look what he says. He says, we all with unveiled face, we all contemplate the Lord's glory. And look what he says, we are what? We are, okay, I moved too fast. All right, uh, 2 Corinthians Chapter 3, verse 18. Remember the one I said we're going to spend a long time there? Don't lose it. That one. All right. 3.18. Here we go. Just follow along. That we with unveiled faces, we all contemplate the Lord's glory. We are what? We're being transformed. Right? Now, that is the word. In Greek, it's a single word. Metamorpho. Uh, it's, a metal, it's a form of metamorpho. 
But I want you to catch, they get a great translation. They say, we're being transformed. Now, for those of you who remember your English classes, what tense is being transformed? Good, there's 14 of you. It's like, uh, I don't know, I don't want to get this wrong. Uh, yeah, it's a present tense. It's, it says, we are being transformed. He doesn't say, we, you were transformed, past tense. He doesn't say, you will be transformed, future tense. He says, you are being transformed in the here and now. On June, what's this, June the 9th? Okay, what? Oh, I said no. <laughs> like, that's going to Okay, June the 9th, right? 2019. If you're a follower of Jesus, on this day, you are being transformed. It is an ongoing process. Now, it's not only a process, it is a supernatural process. In other words, transformation is not something we do on our own. As long as you come to Jesus, someone gives you a Bible, and it's like, okay, good, figure it out. Go transform yourself. (laughs) You know, here's the goal, picture of Jesus. (laughs) Yeah, you got it wrong. Try again. Uh, No, we're, it's a supernatural process. This is something God does. And I want you to look again, same verse, 318. Hopefully you're still there. Um, It says, we all contemplate the Lord's glory. We are, what's our word again? Being transformed. In the Greek, the word, and you'll see here in English too, but the, the Greek word for metamorpho is in what we call the passive tense. Or passive voice, rather. Um, and you see it in the English, we're being transformed. Notice it doesn't say we are transforming ourselves. It says we're being, tra- something is happening to us. When Moses went into the tent of meeting, he didn't transform himself. He was transformed by the presence of the Lord. And notice What Paul goes on to say, he says that we are being transformed into his likeness or image with ever-increasing glory, like more and more wattage, which comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. You see that? This transformation is not something that we do. It's something that God does. But I want to make a very important statement, but, but that doesn't mean it happens automatically. Just because it's supernatural, it's not automatic. If it were automatic, Paul wouldn't need to write to the Corinthians and keep calling them out. So when it comes to transformation, here's how it works. God initiates, we cooperate. God initiates, we, like, you're not, your job is not to come up with a vision for your life. Your job is not to figure out, you know, no, God has a vision for your life. You, it's, he's in charge of the transfer. He will initiate, he will lead, he will guide, but your job is to cooperate. This is what the Corinthians were not doing. They were not cooperating with the Holy Spirit. 
they were resisting the Holy Spirit. So this raises a question then, okay, so in our lives then, what does it take to experience this supernatural transformation? And I really want to break it down as simply as I can, just to put it on the bottom shelf for us. What does it look like to experience God's transformation in our life? So there on your note sheet, there's a section. It's called Metamorphosis. What's it take? And I want to just get as simple as possible, break it down. Hopefully, this will be very helpful. Number one, the first thing it takes, if you want to experience transformation, you want to become the person you're created to be, you want to become like King Jesus, you want to be like your creator, you want to be transformed, the first thing it takes is a willing heart. It starts with an attitude of mind or heart that really, truly wants the will of God in your life. This is where it starts. It, that you, you may not know exactly what God's will is. You may not know exactly what he wants from you. But what you do know is whatever he wants, you want that. That you're, you're willing. Now, uh, Jesus said something very profound in John chapter 7. Um, when Jesus came, I think it's hard for us to, to relate to this sometimes. We lose touch with this. But when Jesus came, his teaching was very radical. It's very different in many ways than the teaching of his day. And so for the average Joe Blow on the street, it's hard to know whether to trust him or not. He's doing all these miracles. That's really cool. So yeah, it seems like he's from God, but his teaching is really different than what I've been taught my whole life. And so how do I know if this guy's a false prophet or really sent from God? And Jesus understood that. And so this is what Jesus said. He says, anyone who chooses to do the will of God, catch that. And we choose to, like, we, we say, I don't know whether Jesus is telling the will of God or my, the Pharisees are telling. I don't know. But, but what I know is that whoever is t- teaching the truth about God, I want in. That I, I choose it. I choose the truth. And God, if you'll show me whether Jesus is the truth or the Pharisees are the truth, I will choose to do your will. I just, I just need discernment. I just need enlightenment. He says, anyone who chooses to do the will of, will of God will find out whether my teaching comes from God or whether I speak on my own. You catch this, very profound. Jesus says discernment is more about our heart than our head. Spiritual discernment is more of a heart issue than a head issue. If our heart is in the right place, we truly want to do whatever is his will, then we will discern it. Uh, I love the way in the Greek it puts this, um, and you can see this in the New American Standard translates it this way, but in the Greek what it literally says is if anyone is willing to do my will, then he will know. You catch that how profound it is? If anyone's willing to do my will, he'll know. I, many times in our life, we come to God, we ask him to intervene, we ask him to teach us, lead us, give us wisdom, direct us, help us make this decision. But the reality is, we don't really want to know. What we want is for God to tell us that what we want is right. Right? And so if he tells us what we want, that gives us great confidence and peace. I'm praying about this relationship. I'm praying about my finances. I'm praying about my career. I'm praying about this move. And I really want God to speak because 
I want to know that what I want to do is the right thing and so I can feel good about it. But here's the reality. What I found over life, you see it in Scripture, is that God speaks to those who are ready to listen. And many times we're just fooling ourselves. We're asking God to speak, but we don't really want to do his will. We just want to be affirmed in our will. And if he happens to say what we've already want to do, we say, thank you very much. And if he doesn't, we go, can't hear that. Can you kind of, I'll tell you what, when someone comes to me and says, hey, there was a time in my life I was growing and the word was coming alive and I, I loved going to church and I loved worship and I loved serving and, and I loved reading the Bible on my own. It was just really growing and it's all gone now. My life was spiritually dead. I go to church, I get nothing out of it. I read the word, it's like sawdust in my mouth. It's just, I just lost the zeal. It's like God's not speaking. My question is, if God were to speak, would you obey him? Because often when that dynamic happens, the reason we've gone into a time of not hearing from the Lord is because way back here, there was something we said no to. There was something here that we said no to. And we, like, no, no, that's too much. That's too big a cost. I can't buy that. I can't believe that. I can't believe God would be that. Whatever it is. We've said no, and spiritually, the light has been going out ever since that time. We'll come back to that more later. So first of all, it starts with a willing heart. Do you really want to know? Do you, really, do you want to be transformed, and are you willing to do whatever God shows you to do it? If, are you choosing God's will? Number two, the second thing, requirement is, what, is a renewed mind. Now, we've talked a lot about that in this series, and that's by intention. I want to drill this home that um, if we want to be transformed, that we have to be renewed in our mind. Remember what we learned, that when we rebelled against God as a race, that we went into spiritual darkness. And so many times, um, the Bible describes coming to Jesus. We tra- in fact, Colossians 1, it says we, we are transferred from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of lights. Um, our, our, that, that our transformation corresponds to the Holy Spirit opening our eyes a new light, new understanding coming in. And so in Romans 12, this is a famous passage we've been looking at. It's the only other place in the New Testament where Paul uses the word metamorpho, again, transformation. And he says, do not conform to the pattern of this world. Now, uh, we're gonna break down a little bit more than we have before. Do not conform to the pattern of this world. That word for pattern in the Greek is the word schema. It's where we get our English word scheme, uh, our schematic, uh, architectural blueprints, right? In other words, he says, hey, this world has a scheme. It's got a mindset. It's got a worldview. It's got a way of seeing life. And he says, do not conform like jello to the pattern of this world, this culture. He said, but be transformed, metamorphosed. And he says, and that happens by the renewing of your mind. So how does that happen? How do our minds get renewed? Our minds get renewed as the Holy Spirit turns on the light in new areas of our life, and we can see the truth about life. And as we do, it's like, oh, that's how you do a marriage. 
Oh, oh, that's how you handle a relationship. Oh, that's how you treat a woman that you're dating. Oh, that's how we approach work. Oh, that's God's vision from, oh, this is how I grow. And as the Holy Spirit turns on the light, our minds get renewed. And as they get renewed, then we're able to experience, as he says, the will of God, which is good, it's pleasing and perfect. So God has a will, it's good, pleasing and perfect, but in order to experience it, we have to be not conformed to our culture, but transformed by the renewing of our minds. And the question is, how does the Holy Spirit turn on the light? How does he enlighten us? And the answer is the Holy Spirit is incredibly creative. He speaks to each of us in the way we hear him best, and he's incredibly creative. Have you ever had that experience of you've been praying for direction about something and you're taking a shower and all of a sudden it comes? Just boom, it comes, right? Uh, you're driving down, the, you're, listen, you're in here in worship and God just meets you in a powerful way and affirms truth or opens up truth. You're talking with a friend and they share something that God's been teaching them and it clicks and it begins to work in your mind. In the next few days, you think of more and more and you, make, you begin to see the application in your life. Maybe you have a dream and God gives you a supernatural dream and it gives you great insight into your life, what he's calling you to do. Maybe it's a vision. Maybe it's a prophetic word. Maybe the Holy Spirit speaks to your heart or he speaks externally. The Holy Spirit is incredibly creative at how he opens up our eyes to spiritual truth. But the primary and number one and most important tool that the Holy Spirit uses to renew our minds is his word. You know, the last night that Jesus was with his men before he's arrested, he's praying for their future. He's concerned about their future. And this is what he prays there in John 17, your note sheet. He says, um, sanctify them by the truth. Now, this is a little hard. The word sanctify is the Greek word hagiadzo. It's the word that's always behind. It's the Greek word that's always behind words like holy or sanctify, same, same word. And this is kind of a tough word for us to get at in English. We don't use the word holy a lot, but when I think of the word holy, I think of pure. I think of beautiful. I think of the way life is supposed to be. So I think of like a holy street. Like if you go in the, the mountains, very high in the mountains, in the Sierras, and there's a beautiful crystal clear uh, mountain uh, stream, that's holy. That's pure. As it comes down the hill and eventually comes out into Los Angeles <laughs> and now is running through our flood channels, that is no longer holy. That needs a water holification plant. <laughs> and so Jesus is praying for his men that God will purify them, make them the people that they should be, created to be. And he says, look what he says, sanctify them by the what? The truth. See, it's truth. Darkness is our enemy. Truth is our friend. Remember what Jesus said, it's, you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. And so Jesus says, sanctify them by the truth. Like, Father, I know you need to purify them and sanctify them, and I know it's, it's gonna take truth. Their minds have to be renewed. It's gonna take truth. But then look what he says next. Your word 
is truth. Pure truth. 100% proof truth. Right? Unadulterated truth. And you know, as I've thought about it over the years, you say, so, okay, so when it comes to this truth that our minds are going to be renewed, the truth of God's word, how do we get that truth into our minds so they can be renewed? And I think there's like three major delivery systems. Uh, we've talked about this before at Rocky Peak, but I put the, the uh, little uh, diagram there again. I call it the three-legged stool, how we grow, but I want to apply it especially to, to the word right now. That, that I think in order to have our minds renewed, that first of all, we need to be in a place where there's great large group teaching of the word. Right? So it doesn't have to be here at Rocky Peak. It'd be anywhere the word is taught and unpacked and when it's clear and understandable, you can apply it to your life. Now this can happen uh, large group settings like, like church. It can happen through podcasts of gifted teachers. It can happen um, through uh, authors, gifted authors. But but the Bible says in Ephesians chapter 4 that God has given apostles and prophets and pastors and teachers and evangelists to his church to equip them for the work of ministry. And so one of the jobs of the community of Jesus is to recognize teachers have been gifted by God to unpack his word in a way that's clear and understandable and leads to transformation. You say, well, how do I know if, um, if I'm in a place like that? Well, here's my test of good Bible teaching. That when you're being taught the word, it should be like uh, in Psalm 119, it says the unfolding of your word brings light. And when the word is being taught properly, it should be an enlightening experience. And here's the other thing. When you're being taught through a passage of scripture, you should be able to go back to the word after it's been taught and see it for yourself. Like if you go and you hear someone teach on the word and it's just amazing, it's Hebrew and Greek and it's so profound and this verse and that verse and you go back and go, it was amazing but I don't know what it says. <laughs> That's a problem. Because anyone can make anything say anything. And so we need to be in a place, and here's what I found over the years, when believers are in a place where the word is being unpacked with clarity, and it's practical, transformation happens. You take those same people and move, this is one reason why I say, hey, when people move, which looks like so many of you are moving right now, Idaho, Arizona, that, hey, don't make the last decision, what, what, where am I going to church? We'll check out the schools, we'll check out, the cost of living, we'll check out the job market. Where are you going to go to church? I don't know, I'll just figure it out. Hello. Right. It's so important. We're in a place where the word's being unpacked in a way that we can understand it. It's clear and enlightenment is happening and we sense it. We sense the Holy Spirit teaching and it's giving us truth to live on. Right. And the second thing, we, we need small groups. It doesn't have to be like, our, we, we do ours with life groups. It it's not about that, just being in a life group, but it's about we need to be in a place where with other believers, we're unpacking the word together. You know, this year, Lynn and I have been in an amazing life group, and it's been so beautiful to see the transformation that's happened there, but one of the reasons is everyone's so hungry to grow, open hearts, and to be really radically honest and vulnerable and just to share our journeys as we unpack the word together, as we share, and we learn from one another. 
It's transformative. And then third, of course, we need that one-on-one time with God. There's no substitute for that where we can go before God. Again, I call it my island of tranquility in the sea of chaos. My time with God is just so critical as we process life and talk about your life and you process the word and what you're being taught on the weekends and what you're reading or podcasts and and you're just processing with the Lord and saying, Holy Spirit, would you speak to me through your word? And can I tell you this, that the world is coming at us 24-7, is it not? We live in a day and age, there is so much information that's coming at us 24-7, more than any other age in world history. You are being hit up constantly with a message, conform to this world. It's coming at you 24-7. It's like every day, the amount of messaging, social messaging, media, entertainment, business, education, government, this constantly pressing this age's uh, agenda in your life. Constantly. You're being told, think like this, think like this, think like this, think like this. And can I tell you, minute, without spending time In the word, which is truth, the chance of our renewal is almost nil. Because our minds cannot be renewed without truth. So it starts with a willing heart. It goes to a renewed mind. And then number three, if I had to do this again, I'd I'd give it like this. So let me give it like I I would have given it to you. Obedient hands and feet. Now, on the screen, it's going to say obedient feet. And you say, oh, that's kind of an odd thing. What I'm saying is that it takes more than a willing heart to listen. It takes more than a renewed mind to be enlightened. It takes action. That when the Holy Spirit shows us truth, we need to act on it. Um, the reason I called it obedient feet is because that's the analogy Paul uses. Look at your note sheet in Galatians chapter 5. It says, since we live by the Spirit. In other words, we're new covenant people. We've come alive by the Holy Spirit Let us keep in what? Keep in step with the Spirit. It's a military marching analogy. He says when when you're marching, instead of just marching with your troop, you're marching with the Spirit, right? And when the Spirit goes left, you go left. He says you're, you're alive by the Spirit, but now be not just listening, but following the Spirit. And keep in step. And so the question is, when the Holy Spirit enlightens, so let's say you have a willing heart, and so you really want to know, and then the Holy Spirit then enlightens your mind and renews your mind, that when he does that, are you quick to obey? This is critical. Many times the Holy Spirit will give us new insight, enlighten us, and we write it down on our note sheet or in our journal at home, and we say, that's amazing. But then we don't act. And to be enlightened and not to act is a very dangerous place to be. I've often referred to this in the past as what I call the dimmer switch principle. Uh, You know, think of it like this. Uh, Imagine that you're out, you're you're hiking, you're backpacking, or you're you're, uh, just hiking, a long day hike, 
and, uh, and you get lost, and now it's dark, and you're in the middle of nowhere, and you don't know where to, to go, right? So not that this is autobiographical, but let's just say that that happened to you, right? And so you're out in the middle of nowhere, and you're getting more and more concerned. You don't know where you are. You don't know how to get back. You're not prepared for this. And so as you go over the next hill, you see in a distance, you see a light. And, uh, and so you know it's civilization of some kind. And so let's say you see that light and you start walking towards the light. With every step you take, what happens to that light? It gets brighter and the way gets clearer. Let's say that it's wartime and you see that light and you're like, I think that's the enemy. And so you turn away from the light and you start walking away from the light. With every step you take, what happens? It gets dimmer, your path gets darker. This is a great understanding, okay, and now what happens spiritually. When the Holy Spirit shows us a new truth, in terms of your finances, your sexuality, your uh, relationships, your attitudes, your fight, whatever the th- situation is, he shows you something new, and when you say yes, and you step towards it, guess what? It gets a little clearer, a little brighter, And with each step, as you move in obedience, the way gets clearer. But let's say the Holy Spirit shows you something, turns on the light, and you don't like what you see. It's going to require a step that you don't want to take. And so you say, I don't want to see, that's uncomfortable for me. So you turn your back around and you start walking away. What happens? With every step, it's like a dimmer switch gets turned down. So we, when, we, when we obey what God shows us, it's like a dimmer switch gets turned up. When we disobey, it's like we lose even the light we had. And so it's so important what we do when God turns on the light. There in your note sheet, Proverbs chapter four, the path of the righteous is like the morning sun, like coming up at dawn, shining ever brighter till the full light of day, But the way of the wicked is like deep darkness, because they're turning away from the light. They do not know what makes them stumble. So if you want to be transformed, it's God's vision for your life, my life. It's a supernatural vision. He'll initiate, he'll lead. We have to cooperate. But it begins with us just, do you have a willing heart? Do you really want to know? Do you choose to do God's will? Are you willing to do his will, whatever he shows you? And then, as he renews your mind and enlightens you, are you willing to obey and quickly keep in step with the Spirit as he shows you the implications of that truth? Amen? Let's pray together. And Father, we just thank you for your word, the beauty of your word, and the way you unpack it for us as we spend time with you and you just open our eyes to new truths. And we thank you for this new covenant teaching that Paul gives us what it means to be in covenant with you, how we grow your vision for our life. And we pray, God, that we would be a people with a willing heart, that our minds would be renewed, and we would be quick to follow and to stay in step with your spirit. And as we worship now, we go into this time of really prayer in worship, and we say, here's my heart, Lord. Speak what is true. God, we pray that today you would speak to us according to our need what our next step is and that we would move towards that light. And we pray that as we bring you our tithes, our gifts, our offerings, you'd use these to 
create a place where transformation can happen. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.